time. If you are three to eight, you may go out with Meg and Mike and Corey. Um, they're going to take you out. So three to eight-year-olds, you can head on out with them. If you are eight or nine to 12, I am sorry, but Emily McConnell is super sick. The whole family is sick, so your teacher is not here today. And if you look around, many people are not here today because sickness is rampant um, everywhere. If you have a little sniffly kid, you have this crud that's been going around. Um, so you are with me today. Um, teachers, just let you know, even we will run past 630, but we aren't running late. I'm not preaching long. So um, anyway, as you head out the door. All right. I think that's everything. So um, in life, there are basically four things that create stress and anxiety and confusion and frustration in our life. They're the source of all of those things. One is our environment. So when I talk about environment, talking about your workspace, the way your house is, if it's cluttered or if it's clean, however that works for you. So those kinds of environments, structures, but also what we would call in, in sociology a psychosocial structure, how all the relational dynamics work in a workplace, right? We all know when you walk into a workplace, there's a code, right? And that code produces stress and anxiety and frustration depending on how everybody works together. Um, so one is environment. The other thing that causes stress, anxiety, frustration, um, and those kinds of things, is relationships, right? We are constantly stuck in, in relationships that, that, that are intimate and we're forced together in them. And, and so we have husbands and wives. We have little kids and adults, right? Parents trying to keep little babies from screaming all night to, you know, parents trying to learn how to deal with teenagers, teenagers trying to learn how to deal with parents, boyfriends and girlfriends. We can go on and on in the kinds of, you know, mom and dad, adult parent relationship. Boy, that's an interesting one, right? To, we, we have all of these relationships. They cause stress and anxiety and frustration, right? The third thing is health. The third thing that you and I face as human beings is our health, either our mental health or our physical health, right? I heard a statistic recently, I don't know if I know it's, if it's true, I didn't do a lot of research on it, but the statistic was this, and it was kind of shocking to me, that they had taken the scale that they used in the 1970s to measure anxiety in mental health wards. Um, the, the scores that people would get on those tests are lower than most high schoolers in the present time get on anxiety, on the same anxiety test. So the, the idea was that Teenagers now are under more anxiety than people who were under psychiatric care in the 1970s. Like, so anxiety levels. And we know this, I mean, this is, I don't need that study to know that's true. In social science, we know you can track kind of, we've moved out of a rural life into city life, so we're pressed closer together. Anytime you're pressed closer together and you separate the family, that produces more anxiety, right? And then you add the internet and that produces more anxiety, right? Because we have more information and we're even more connected. So there's the mental health thing, and then we all know in our bodies 
as the older we get, or just when you have a, an illness or a surprising illness, right? Something hits you and you're like, oh my gosh, and you're in the hospital, or it, it creates anxiety, stress, frustration, and confusion, right? And the last one that we deal with is money, right? The last thing that kind of covers life is money. Money is a stressor, right? If you have it, then you start feeling guilty and you don't know what to do with it, right? If you, you, you know, it doesn't, because it doesn't seem to do what you want it to do for you. If you don't have it, then you're constantly just trying to think, how am I going to pay my rent? How am I going to eat? Money is this thing that keeps life together and produces more anxiety, frustration, right? Stress. Now, here's the thing. All of us spend our life narrating our life in the negative in all those areas. Like even when we try really hard, and in the, in the 60s and 70s and 80s when we tried this whole new age thing, even when we try to narrate our life in a positive manner, we always default to the negative, right? Because the reality is, is that we know that life really doesn't work, that there's something uniquely broken with our environment, with our health, with our money, and with our relationships. It's broken, right? And if you're here tonight, then my guess is, is that you believe that, some, that Jesus, at some level, has some kind of answer. Now, for some of us, we believe that Jesus' death and his resurrection gives us hope in the midst of all this brokenness. For some of you, it's just like you're here and you're trying to figure out Jesus and if he's actually legitimate and it's going to be helpful in the way that we think about life. Now, we've been in this series called Simplicity, or Simple Things, and it wasn't because we were going to cover simple things, but that we were going to try to just cover some verses that we thought were uniquely, um, or were important if you were kind of in the basics of your faith, but also verses that we thought were key to who we are as villagers, that they kind of were ones that at the village were like, yeah, this defines who we are. And so tonight, we're looking at Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, right? We, we looked at 2 Corinthians 5, 17. We, I think we looked at 1 John 1, 9. We, we looked at a lot of different kind of just basic verses about our faith. And tonight we're going to look at this verse, these two verses in Proverbs chapter 3. Now, Proverbs is in the Old Testament. And Proverbs um, are, are, is a book written by probably by Solomon mostly, other, other authors, but it's written in a way where the author is kind of looking back and saying, this, this idea is a good idea, um, but it's not a rule. It's a principle. There are exceptions to it. And in fact, if you read Proverbs, he'll say, this is, this is true, and oh, the opposite is true too. Right? That's, that these are principles of how to live life. Now, in Proverbs chapter 3, he's talking about wisdom. And we're going to land in verse 5 and 6. And there are three words that I want you to hold on to. Um, and I'm going to try to make this really simple because what I have to offer you tonight is a diagnostic tool that you can use for yourself and for everybody in the community and for your friends and family outside to help you deal and understand your environment, your relationships, your health, and your money. I'm going to give you something really tangible. So there are three words in... This two, these two verses that I want you to hold on to. Number one is trust. Number two is lean. 
And number three is acknowledge. Trust, lean, and acknowledge. I want you to have those in your head. Now, I will tell you the verse, the two verses. Starts out with trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Now, the key is that last part. He will make your path straight. When you face environment, relationships, you know, money and health, the thing that produces frustration and anxiety and all these different things is that your path is not straight, right? You have a crooked path. Have you ever thought about what a crooked path might be like? Well, it's usually dark and you don't know where you're going and you don't even know if there's a cliff that you could fall off of. Anxiety is all about being on a crooked path. And so, when you look at these things in your life, when you face problems, when you're struggling with stuff, the thing you have to think is, okay, my path is probably not straight. And so in this verse, there are three things that you can look at and kind of think through to help you begin to process what a straight path might look like. So the first thing is trust in the Lord with all your heart, right? Now, pastors... I included, as I thought about this, do a horrible job talking about trust. Because what we do is we tell you, we give you these illustrations. One that we like to use is that blind trust exercise, right? Where we, you turn around and a bunch of people behind you say, yeah, we're going to catch you, fall backwards. And that's what it's like to trust God. Because God's kind of a crazy teenager and you're risking it with him right? Or or like we give the example of a three-year-old baby jumping into the pool and, and dad's like, jump, jump. And like God is like this, you know, guy in a pool in a dangerous spot. Like we, we, we kind of set things up. But look, this whole chapter is about wisdom. It's about actually making an informed decision. Trusting God it's not about saying, well, this seems good and I don't, I don't know. No, trusting God is, is coming to you saying, okay, I've come to the place where I already believe that God is trustworthy. It's more about what we talked about two weeks ago when we talked about 2 Corinthians 5.17 when I said, when we talked about being in Christ. And I said, being in Christ is holding a banner over your head and saying, this is where I belong, like a standard. This is the military position that I belong to. I'm in Christ. I'm under this banner. This holds my identity. When the writer of Proverbs is saying, trust in the Lord with all your heart, he's saying, take on the identity of God. Right? When you take on the identity of somebody, you're saying it's not what's valuable to me anymore. It's what's valuable to the Lord. So when you're saying I'm going to trust with all of my heart, which in the Hebrew means everything, right? It's real simple. All of your heart means all of you. You're saying all of me belongs to all of you, right? I am make, I am, what you're saying is you are trustworthy enough for me to hand over everything. Right? I am now going to identify as you, not as me. Right? That's what it means to be in Christ. That's what it means to trust God with all your heart. So it's an identity question. Always when you're talking about trust, you're talking about identity. Am I going to be in Christ or are I going to be in Eric? Okay? So that's kind of your first diagnostic. And we'll talk a little bit more about this because Jesus kind of transforms this and talks about following. So he calls us to follow him, and we'll talk a little bit about that. 
The second part says to not lean on your own understanding, right? To do not lean on your own understanding. All right. I just, uh, when I was walking in here, um, Adrian said to me, hey, you know, in Spanish, we say the chair, not my chair. We say the car, not my car. But as Americans, we are, as in English, we say, no, that's my car. You can go use my car, right? And when we begin, when we come to problems in, t- in our environment, in our relationships, in our health and our money, we always start this way. I start this way. I begin to think, I need to figure this out. Something is wrong in my, in my relationship at the church. I need to figure this out. You know, Rod and I don't have things going right. I need to figure it out. Julie and I got problems. I need to figure it out right? There's something wrong in my bedroom and it needs redecorating. I need to figure it out. Something wrong with my health? Well, I'm going to put together a workout schedule, right? I'm going to figure it out. I, you see the problem? I, I, I. Now, here's the thing. A lot of times when you hear speakers talk about Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, and they say, oh, do not lean on your own understanding. And they're like, yeah, but sometimes God's understanding seems weird and funny, Right? And he does weird things and he doesn't make any sense. I don't think, well, you're, you're, you're giving me a soundtrack there. That's awesome. I'm not doing any Spanish dancing though. Uh, um, so, so, but God's understanding of things is not funny. It's not weird. It's not out of the, out of the norm. Your thinking is weird and not normal. Right? That's why you shouldn't lean on it. Right? And so, so one of the, so the second thing that we need to think about as we face these four stressors and things that produce anxiety in our life, the thing is, whose understanding am I leaning on? Now, th- that's, that's key. How do I narrate things? Am I narrating them as I, or am I narrating them as what is God doing? Right? Because one of the keys to, to having a straight path is being part of a, of a story with Jesus where you're constantly asking, what is Jesus doing and how can I join him? Right? That is what it means to lean on Jesus' understanding, is to, complete, to begin to always try to be putting that in a filter. Okay, we'll kind of expand that in a minute. Let's go to the next part, though. So we've got trust, we've got lean. Now, you have to acknowledge, in all your ways, you need to acknowledge God, right? In all your ways, you need to acknowledge God. Now, this, this is where I think a lot of times as followers of Jesus or people who are trying to figure out Jesus is where we really kind of run amok and begin to, to live out lives of anxiety is that we're not in conversation with Jesus. And the reason is, is that we don't, didn't realize that it is in all of your ways. In all of your ways. Because see, kind of, and, and hopefully most of us do this, but when we sit down to eat, we thank God for the food. Do you know why we thank God for the food? Well, it's honoring to God, yes. But food is what you need to live. None of us can live without food. But it's also saying, Jesus, the only way that we can truly live is if we have you to eat, if you're the one we can consume. That's why we thank God for our food, is it's just a simple reflection of our relationship with Jesus. But a lot of times we do that, 
And then there's no acknowledgement, there's no conversation until we get to the moment of extreme crisis in our environment, relationships, health, and money, and then we use explicitives or whatever, we begin to swear and say, oh, ah, God, help me, right? But in between, there's no conversation. There's not a dialogue. Now, my son over here, who's having another conversation, um, loves to talk to me, right? He's a preacher. Yes. And he loves to talk, and he loves to engage, and he loves to be with me, and he loves to talk about everything, and there's nothing, and, and he would attest to this, there's nothing that he doesn't want to tell me about. He's like, if he does this thing on a computer game, he wants to tell me. If he read for four hours and he's proud of himself, he wants to tell me. There's a conversation. There's a dialogue going on between us. I am not a good example of God for him because at some point I'm like, I'm not listening, right? I've tuned out. <laughs> no, no, it's not to test you. We'll have a dialogue about this later. Um, but the reality is, is that you and I don't have these dialogues with God because it seems like it's a little uncomfortable. Um, and we're kind of not used to just talking to God. So when I was, um, before I married Sue, I got to live in her grandparents' house for two years while I went to ASU. Boo. I went to ASU. I'm sorry. Um, but while I was there, Sue's grandfather passed away. And there was a couple months between that where Grandma and I were living in the same house together. And I, it was a weird house because I lived in the back room, then there was a bathroom, then there was another room, and then there was a living room. So when I would get up in the morning, I would go to the bathroom, take a shower, walk into this room, and then I would stop because early in the morning, her grandma would just be weeping. And she would be talking to God. And she would be telling him all about her life and how she was done. She was like 85 and she wanted to stop, but she talked out loud and how much she missed her husband. And when she talked, I could tell she'd been talking to God for a long time. You know, when you overhear somebody's conversation and with, and two people are talking, you're like, they've been friends for a really long time because they've almost got to the point where they both just talk at the same time and they can just play off each other. And there's a chemistry in that. I could tell that that she had been in a process in her life of acknowledging god and dialoguing right but see and when we talk about all our ways it's the simplest ways it's when you're out in the garden you're talking to god about the beautiful beans it's not just it's constantly being in like a, a, a narrative conversation with god it's being willing to talk out loud but here's an example that i i give to men and women when we talk about pornography. And I had thought these little ones here were not going to be here, so I will keep it as G as possible. But I think this is important. One of the things that I talk to men and women, but more men, when they're talking about struggling with pornography, is I say, well, you know what? The best thing to do is for you to invite Jesus to go look at pornography with you. And people look at me and they're like, what? Because that seems strange. But I guarantee you, if you begin a dialogue with Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, I'm, ha- I'm going to do this. Why don't you come with me? Jesus will talk to you. He will talk to you. He talks to me. I, I, he, he'll talk to you. I guarantee it. Because he doesn't want to be pushed out of this brutal struggle. He wants to be in it. 
And he, he wants to talk to you about what's going on in you and what's going on in those people. So it's okay. Invite him into that conversation. I guarantee it will transform the way you deal with your sexuality because you are acknowledging God in all your ways, in all of your ways, in your broken ways and in your good ways. So God, if we want our path straight, if we want to be in Christ, the diagnostic that you need is to first say, okay, identity. Am I willing to give over everything I have and who I am to God? Am I willing to trust? Am I willing to lean on God's understanding? Right? Am I willing to step into that? And am I willing to enter into this dialogue? Because if any one of those are askew, your path's not going to be straight. Now, I want to give you a little bit more detail. In John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus is in a dialogue with a bunch of people. And he says to them, I'm the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will no longer walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That's Eric's paraphrase. But it's pretty much what it says. And that word light means animation. Okay? So when one lives in darkness... They are not animated. And when one lives with the light, they are animated. So what Jesus is saying is that you have a choice when you follow him. You're either going to be a zombie and driven by your own animal instincts in the darkness, or you can be animated and be alive with the light. Now, you know how you get a straight path? You get a straight path by having it lit so you know where you're going. So Jesus says to people, to get there, you have to follow them. And this is basically him expanding Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Because this word follow has five uses, and it's used this way both in and outside of the New Testament. And I think Jesus has all of them in mind when he says this. Okay. So as you and I begin to face our environments and our relationships and our health and our money as people, and as we begin to try to help each other in that, and as we try to help others outside of our community who aren't followers of Jesus, we need to understand what Jesus is inviting us into because I think it gives us a clue to what it looks like to trust, lean, and acknowledge. So the first idea in following Jesus is risk. The idea that is here is that it's used about a soldier following a captain into battle. Right? So the captain is at the bottom of the hill and he says, we're going to take this hill. And the soldiers are like, let's go. And the captain runs up the hill and everybody runs up the hill. Now, Jesus says all of this right after an amazing story that most of you have probably heard. And that is the story of the woman caught in adultery. And here is what Jesus is actually asking us to do when he says, follow me and you will live in the light. This is the thing that he's talking about. You see, two weeks ago, we talked about being ministers of reconciliation and how in the moment now, you and I are members of the office of the ministry of reconciliation and we have a mission. Well, here's Jesus demonstrating and calling us in and asking us to follow. And here's what it looks like. Jesus brought before him is this woman caught in adultery and they want to know what to do with her 
And you have all these men ready to stone her. And Jesus gets down on the ground. He starts riding in the sand. And eventually he says, you know, whoever is without, the first person without sin or the person without sin should be the first person to cast a stone. Right? So obviously everybody's like, oh, that's not me. They drop the stones. Then he looks at the woman and he says, where are your accusers? And she says, none of them are here. And he says, I don't accuse you. Now go and don't sin anymore. I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now, here's the interesting thing. Here you have the perpetrator, and here you have the victim. And what's the call, the thing that you and I are called to? To stand in between them and say to the perpetrator, you can't do this, be holy, right? The first person, who, the person without sin, they should cast a stone. Be holy. He's saying to them, be holy. To them, the victim, he doesn't say, oh man, here's all the reasons you're in this place. No, he says, where are your accusers? I don't condemn you, which is the call of the gospel. I don't offer you condemnation, the cross, the resurrection. But guess what? Go and sin no more. Go and be holy. The thing that Jesus asks us to do, the call to follow him, to be in his mission and to hold his flag and to trust him is to actually stand in between the perpetrator and the victim and call both to holiness and talk about what condemnation really is and isn't and who Jesus is. It's number one. He's asking you to take a risk. Number two, following is talked about how a slave follows a master, but not just because they've been enslaved, but the picture of this following is more like the the master has to go to a city to do something, and the slave knows the master so well that he gets to the city before the master prepares everything so that the master can easily step into what he needs to do, right? Tim Keller, who's a very famous pastor um, in the Reformed world, uh, that probably means nothing to most of you. Um, but he says that a church cannot control what the Holy Spirit does. But a church can be ready for the Holy Spirit to fall on them. Right? You can be in a place of holiness, or you can be in a place of abject rejection of God. The, ho- the Holy Spirit, we can be ready for the Spirit of God. We can be ready for our Master. The call to follow, the call to trust to lean and to acknowledge is about knowing our master so well that we're ready for him to act, that we've prepared the ground for the spirit of God to move. So there is an element. We have risk and then we have the holy, then we have this element of following that's built around being committed to what the mission is. It is a a change of identity. The next thing is vulnerability because this also means to follow wise counsel, right? To follow wise counsel. Well, when you follow wise counsel, that means that you have to be vulnerable. And the key to that is that Jesus invites you into a community of God. When he says, follow me, he's saying, follow me with a group of people. Because a lot of times, what happens is that when a community of God surrounds himself around Jesus, transformation happens, and they're going to transfer, transform you. And so your ability to follow wise counsel means that you actually have to not believe that you're the one who's right, which is difficult, right? It's very hard to take wise counsel. 
But Jesus says, you're going to follow me. If you're going to lean on my understanding, that means that you're going to have to let other people in the community speak into your life. You're going to have to let other people help you apply Scripture into your life. The next one is obedience, right? Jesus says in the Gospel of John, if you love me, you'll obey me. Following the laws of the state is what this word is used for sometimes, that I follow the laws of the state. Part of following Jesus is being obedient, right? Trusting, leaning, acknowledging is following the Ten Commandments, which Rod over here is a good Reformed guy. What's the most important commandment? Yes. Yes. Right? That, that, you, that, that basically it is all about God and all about other people. That's what obedience is about. So following is about obeying. And the last one is focus. Being able to follow a line of argument. Being able to follow the teachings of Jesus and what he really means. And here's the thing. We live in an ADD culture. We do. And all of you say, I have trouble focusing because I am ADD. I get it. So am I. Right? It's very hard to focus. But all that means is that you have to work a little harder. Because what Jesus has to say isn't just all simplicity. There is a complexity to God, and there is a complexity to his teaching, and there is a discipline that is required for you to follow where he's going, what he's saying, right? There's, there, you have to apply your mind. There is a part of following Jesus that's implying your mind, right? So when Jesus calls us to follow, that's what he's asking us to do. Now, here's, here's the closing thing that I have to offer. As you and I face environmental issues in our life, where we live, the structures of relationships, relationships themselves, our health and money, as we face those with our friends and family, I want you to use this diagnostic tool. As people are frustrated, anxious, confused, have a a lot of anger going on in their life, you can begin to ask the question, okay, Do they trust God with all their heart? Are they taking hold of the identity of Christ? What is it that having Christ as their identity is so difficult for them? Or, leaning, are they so geared on their own things? Is is I a part of the way that they narrate their life? You know this. You've sat with people. You've said it yourself. We all narrate by I. I did this. I'm this. I can't figure out this. I don't know why this person is this way. I don't. I, I, I. You know that someone is a disciple of Jesus when they begin to narrate their life by other people. I was worried about what was going on over here with this person. I've been really praying for these people because I'm terrified of what's happening here. I don't, like, when people begin their narration by a concern and a compassion for other people, you know that they're a follower of Jesus. When they narrate it by I, you know their path is crooked and you can help them, right? And last, you can kind of ask, okay, how, what's their conversation with God look like? How do they talk to God? One of the best ways to help yourself and other people engage with Jesus as they wrestle with stuff, and we all do because we all narrate our life in the negative, is to say, you know what, let's just pray. We don't need to come up with answers. 
Let's just pray. Let's talk to God and let's tell him what's going on and tell him our frustrations and tell him what we think he needs to do and what we wanted him to do. And let's begin a dialogue and let's listen and see what he says. Right? Let's begin to train our ear together. So, I don't have time tonight for questions, which we usually have, but it's already almost 6.30. Um, so we're going to just close. I'm going to pray. And then we can have this conversation about being a follower of Jesus afterwards around food. So I'll pray. Jesus, thank you so much for this community. And thank you for the way that they challenge me and for the way that they are committed to seeing your gospel go out, not only in our lives, but in the lives of of others in this city and in this world. And I ask for your blessing tonight on our food and on our conversation and on our hearts and help us to be disciples. I ask that in your name, Jesus. Amen. There is a couple ways to respond um, tonight. One is through offering. If you're visiting with us, we're just happy to have you. You don't need to give anything. If you would pass that back, sir. That'll go back that way. Hand this to you, Julie. The other way to respond is there's a white chair back there. It's called the sinner's chair. It's not called the sinner's chair anymore. It's called the healing chair. It used to be a black chair. It's now a white chair. It's called the healing chair. If you need to be prayed for, um, if you, and anything, any kind of healing, sin you need to confess, go sit in that chair. Somebody will pray for you. Um, And last, in responding to God's word, we have communion. On the night that Christ was betrayed, He's eating the Passover meal. And he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. And at the end of the meal, he took the last glass of wine and he held it up. And he said, this is my blood shed for you. The blood of the new covenant, right? For forgiveness of sins. This is it right here. And as he was saying that, animals had been, many, many animals had been sacrificed to the point where you could smell the blood. It was so pungent. So when Jesus holds up and says, this is my blood, everybody could smell it. They, they had a sense of it, most likely. As you come up and respond to God's word, communion is all about saying, I trust God. I lean on God and I acknowledge God. And I do that in front of my community. So as we respond to God, let us sing and take communion together.